honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. I'm Sharice Thornhill, and I just recorded my episode for Women in Sneakers season of Strange on Purpose podcast. I'll say this too. I'm not speaking on behalf of the brand. I'm speaking on behalf of Sharice Thornhill. <laughs> so that's going to be a massive disclaimer in the beginning of this episode. Yes. Yeah. I'm speaking on behalf of myself as long as I can speak on behalf of me moving forward. I love that. Um, I have all sorts of perspectives on things, and you know, um, I love partnering with brands like this one to do special things. So, um, but yeah. Cool. Nice. Yeah, I see you have like 10,000 books behind you. Are you reading anything yeah. right now? Or one of one of my bookshelves. I actually have four in my apartment. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so as a creative, books are just they're like my secret weapon um, in a way. Because I, I feel like, you know, it's really hard to get inspiration from other types of products or to come up with anything new because there's so much has been already done, but there's so much wealth found in books, um, you know, that maybe not everyone even has access to. Um, so there's one that I love to some reading it right now on mental toughness, um, mm-hmm. especially, you know, in light of everything that's happening right now, I think it's, this is a time to strengthen ourselves, not only our bodies, but our minds and our spirits. And, um, that's just personal practice of mine. So that's, that's one that I'm really reading right now. What did you see the name was? I'll show it to you right now. It's, it's a Harvard business review. Oh, nice. on mental toughness. I thought you said I'm reading a book on mental toughness. <laughs> on, that, on that topic, um, and I, I hate saying everything that's going on, but 2020, it's like legit. There's a list of everything that's going on because there's so much. Uh, but can, can you talk about like that and like how much that, or if it has fueled your creativity? Because there's, right. there's been so much like at the start, like we lost, we lost so much money um, with COVID and then like, on top of that, it's like, okay, now you got to balance that with like being a, a black entrepreneur, a black person in America, black man in America. It's just so much, but it's, it's also like fueled a lot of things for me, like creatively. So I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that and just everything going on as well. No, I mean, I'm a problem solver (laughs) at heart and every time there's a new obstacle, I'm about it. I'm like, okay, well, what, what, is, what is the other obstacle we have to overcome at this point? I think just throughout my entire life, there's been obstacle after obstacle. Um, and I've kind of thrived on just kind of overcoming those things. I almost welcome a challenge in a way because I feel like it brings something else out of me that I didn't even know was, was in there. And I get to discover myself in a new way and then discover my partners and my teammates in a new way. And, and there's this, this uh, resilience, you know, that's just part of us as people of color, um, we've overcome so much and it's already in us. So every time there's a new obstacle like COVID, 
you know, um, I moved from Miami, Florida to Brooklyn <laughs> right before um, the pandemic hit. And I almost feel like the door kind of shut behind me. <laughs> so I'm like, no, OK, I can't even go back to Miami right now. <laughs> um, but I feel like the, the door just shut. And I kind of took that as, as energy, you know, that I'm supposed to be in Brooklyn right now. You know, I'm facing this pandemic. We're launching a new program and there are all of these obstacles that are, um, you know, kind of in our face and we're facing it, but it's all for a reason, you know, and it's inspired me. I'm spending a lot more time in my home where I'm actually way more productive than I would be in an office. And I'm having, you know, just other thoughts and other ideas. And my day is a lot more structured than it used to be, which I actually like. And I now I'm planning in moments of, of inspiration, like taking a webinar during lunch, you know, or planning those, those um, inspirational moments throughout my day just to kind of get refueled and gain energy. But even from a product standpoint, if we're spending more time at home, like what are those product opportunities now that are, you know, presenting themselves? And then, the, yeah, right. And then the other side of that is, you know, we got used to, to, to being in our homes and, and then, okay, now we're still facing a lot of the, the injustice, injustices that we've been facing as people of color. And that's even coming to the forefront. And it's inspire, inspiring because it has, it's, it's not something that's new. We know that it's been happening and we've been oppressed for a long time. But I think now because the world is at a standstill, everyone is forced to, to look at it and see it for what it is um, and acknowledge it. And that's also inspiring for me because now I feel like, okay, I have a lot more thought partners than I did before. And now we can all work together to eradicate, you know, the injustices that have been pervasive in our society, you know, for such a long time. Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy because throughout the hustle and bustle that was way, our way of life before, like a, a lot of this, a lot of stuff got swept under the rug, right? And whether it it is um, or it was racial tensions, or whether it was like, hey, it, you're you're killing it business wise, and you really weren't. It's it's crazy all this stuff that's come to light and whether that's um, hearing like from these designers and all these people uh, within the industry that are, are really like using their platform for good. I think in a lot of cases um, it's been really refreshing uh, from a consumer really to actually sit back and see which of the brands that I follow like crazy or the, which of the, the influencers in a way celebrities uh, that I follow uh, are actually doing good with their platforms rather than not. So what, who, have you seen anybody that has really inspired you to kind of uh, step up to the plate? Well, I think there are a lot of, you know, influencers and people, you know, in, in the public eye who are stepping up to the plate. But I think the, the inspiration for me comes from my own circle and my own team you know, and, and other designers, you know, who are that, who are my friends. And we had plans for this year, (laughs) you know, we had big lofty goals this year and just watching, you know, how resilient everyone is. It's been challenging, but, um, just kind of stepping, stepping back and, and every day taking every day, you know, one day at a time, but also thinking about, okay, well now how are we going to shift and move, you know, launching a new program, you know, this year and, and trying to do something really special in our industry and now being faced with, with everything that's going on right now, we've had to go completely virtual, shift our, our whole dynamic, our whole way of, of working, but it's also presented a lot more opportunities for um, our, our group and our team to be supported by others. 
who maybe were just maybe too busy <laughs> before, you know, so it's also, it's created a lot of new pathways for us. So that's been really inspiring. When did you make this shift from physical to virtual? March 15th. Mm. I remember the day because I went to the supermarket and I stocked <laughs> up as much as I could. Nothing <laughs> on the shelves. <laughs> and I'll always remember that day, but March 15th was, was our, our last day in the office and we were completely virtual at that point and we took every day you know, one day at a time. But then we, we also discovered that there was a lot of time being lost. You know how it is when you're in an office, yeah. you, know, <laughs> you know, the long lunches and then, you know, you're sitting and kind of communicating with your team and a lot of, a lot of fun um, things that you didn't plan for happen during that time, but also a lot of time is wasted, yeah. you know, and having a shift to virtual, we were able to really be object, more objective about our day and our time and, and plan it more strategically than sort of kind of just going with the flow. Yeah, we can we can dive more into like everything you're doing um, soon on that topic, though. Um, do you find it's the same for the students as well? Like, are they more productive at home or is it is it like is it harder for them? Every day is different. Um, I think some people and I'll just speak for myself as an introvert. I thrive, like I need that time, that quiet time to, to regenerate and gather my own thoughts before I'm able to like show up and be a hundred percent myself. So working in a like really fast paced environment with so much visual noise happening was challenging for me and I had to constantly try to adapt. Um, and so our, our designers are experiencing some of the same things for those who maybe are more planners who need some quiet time, you know, they're thriving and some who um, maybe need more stimulation, need more collaboration in person, they're having to kind of work through, you know, not having that. But, you know, I think we all have to adapt and, and maybe we'll find a happy balance. It's, it's kind of cool seeing how, well, first of all, it's crazy seeing that like kids are about to go to school uh, throughout this pandemic. I actually saw this morning, um, I think it was a, uh, the, the photo went viral at this point, but uh, there's this, a school district in Georgia, I believe, um, opened up and they opened up and had, um, there was a picture of their high school and all the hallways were just jam-packed, just jam-packed and not one mask, not, not one teacher with a mask, nothing. And it's been cool reading about the stories about how these teachers think like some teachers really believe um one being a, a teacher in chicago really believes that working uh doing schoolwork at home is actually going to be better for the kids in her and in, in her classroom and while there are some kids that are like kind of like hey school is like my outlet like if i'm not at school i'm in a rough area but uh it's, it's been very interesting from our, from that perspective, just the education piece, like where we're going to go from here, because a lot of people like school, high schools really before the pandemic were a lot of rich high schools were moving towards online programs, um, already. So it was just, it's really just fascinating to me how people are shifting and everything like that. So in your line of work, are you guys how much have you changed? Is I'm guessing everything is vir virtual, but did you have to develop a new, um, like a brand new program? Like how did that go with you guys? Yeah, we had um, an initial plan 
And, you know, our school, it's called SEED, so it's School for Experiential Education and Design. And the experiential part is a big part of the program and how we're structured. And the whole idea was, you know, you learn by making and doing. And now having a shift to being all virtual, we had to think about how are we going to shift, you know, and and a lot of it has become um, more about working on the fundamentals, like you've seen all my books and I really kind of in, encourage our team to read more. So I'm prescribing more books to them. I'm really honing in on the beginning part of the design process where you're developing a product story. So we're talking a lot about how do you identify insights? Who's your consumer? Talking to more people. And I think that's, that's the beauty of everyone sort of being at home now. Like there's more access to people you maybe wouldn't have had access to before because everyone was on the go. And that's, that's the part of the process we've been really diving deeper into, um, you know, working backwards, ideating on, okay, where do we want our product to be at the end, putting the steps, you know, working, working backwards and putting the steps together. But then the key insight is talking to real people, getting to know, you know, your consumers, what's going on in their lives right now? How has, you know, the, the pandemic impacted their lives, um, then their purchasing power, has that shifted? Has that changed? The, what, the products that they buy that they feel like are really important that has had to change because of COVID. Maybe they have a lot less resources. Now, what types of products are they looking for? Is it more unique types of products? Is it more niche? Or is it really like pure, basic, essential products that, that they actually need? And we've gotten a lot of insights um, to really help us develop products that are going to really matter to, to consumers on the back end. It's the first cohort, right? It is. This idea then like year one passes, then you launch another and you have two going on simultaneously or is it just finish, finish the two? Yeah. That's the idea that that we bring in a second um, cohort while the first one is moving into year two where they're going to be focused on internships and developing their crafts within a team outside of us. That's legit. Yeah, I was looking, I was looking at your stuff a couple of days ago and I, I was like, damn, like, this is dope. Like, <laughs> like creatively, I rarely get inspired by like things that big brands do, but like super, super, super dope. And I think I'm going to create like five things today because I was watching it again. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of people um, get kind of wrapped up in a brand and what a brand stands for. But if you really kind of dive deeper, it's really the people that make a brand, you know, and the team that I have now is the best team I've ever worked with in my entire career, I think we have alignment on passion and um, drive and legacy and, and really wanting to see change really happen. It's, it's, it's more about affecting real change versus saying, oh, one day we're going to do this, you know, <laughs> which I think, you know, brands, they, they have these aspirations, but never really put like real dollars behind it, galvanize a, a group of people who are really passionate about it and aren't just chasing like, their own career and, and climbing the ladder, but really want to see real change happen in the industry and then in the lives of real people. And, and that's the team I'm part of now. And it's like the best experience I've had. I would move to Brooklyn for this. <laughs> no other reason would I leave Miami. <laughs> but it, the, the work that we're doing now just has so much purpose and, and meaning behind it. And that's what I've been looking for at this, this point in my career. Love that. What's from here, uh, before we dive any more, like any deeper, do you want to introduce yourself and what you do and why you do it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm Sherry Thornhill. 
I've talked about Miami a few times right now in this conversation, um, but my family moves um, from Trinidad in the Caribbean um, to New York in the 70s. And then they moved down to, to Miami, which is like the natural progression <laughs> for uh, well, from the Caribbean. And I grew up in South Florida. Um, I'm a product of a single parent household. Um, you know, I watched, you know, all the women in my family work really hard to provide for, you know, myself and my cousins and the next generation. And I always wanted to make my family proud. I always wanted to make them feel like their sacrifice of, of leaving, you know, their home and coming to a new country um, was going to be worth it because I was going to be able to kind of take that energy and kind of drive it forward and, and, and bring about change. And I played basketball growing up. Um, Alonzo Mourning is a favorite <laughs> a player of all time. Nice. Um, I always loved um, art and, and making things with my hands. And, you know, when I got into junior high and high school, that's where I discovered that I can actually bring all the things that I love sport, um, fashion, uh, art, all those things can come to life through footwear design. And I discovered that that was, that was a career path that I can actually achieve and attain. Um, when I got into high school, I discovered that. And um, I went to design architecture senior high in South Florida. Um, it's actually A plus school. It had fashion design, industrial design, graphic design, um, and a lot of other uh, art forms. And it was a public school, a public magnet school. So I, was, I feel really fortunate to have been exposed to design that early on in my career. And there were a few um, designers who'd gone on from that school um, to go to college and then also went on to Nike. And they would come back and share you know, with us at a high school level, some of the things that they were accomplishing in their career. And at that moment, I was like, wow, okay, there's someone who you know, looks like me is from my hometown and they're doing this. And it clicked for me. And I, I knew that at that moment, I wanted to work for Nike. I wanted to be a footwear designer and I was gonna follow that path. And um, so after high school, I, moved, I went on and moved to Detroit and I, I attended college for creative studies. And while I was there, again, a lot of great mentors came into my life. Dwayne Edwards, who, um, you know, runs Pencil Footwear Academy in Portland, Jason Maven, um, Kimberly Shane, a lot of other designers like really fed into me and mentored me at, at the college level. And I was able to land an internship in SB at Nike in the summer of 2006, which was fun, which was like, nice. the high, like you know, <laughs> All the, all the mayhem going on with Dunks at that time. And I saw the three bears, um, you know, on the <laughs> before they ever released. And I just kind of fell in love and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so after college, I went on and I worked for Nike um, for almost 10 years. I worked on a lot of Kobe's China basketball product when I was part of Nike nice. basketball, which was really fun. Um, you know, and it's so special to me now to have worked on his product and to have had an opportunity to work with him. Um, I just always remember, you know, that time and the product that I was able to to produce, you know, in collaboration with him and the and the brand in that way. And um, I went on and I worked in the emerging markets, which was fun. I was working on cricket shoes, um, you know, kind of reconnecting to to my roots a little bit. I worked on some running products, so I got a a chance to work on a variety of different products at Nike. And I got to a point in my career where. Um, I felt like I wanted more purpose in the work that I was doing. I'd done a lot of the things that I wanted to do, but I really wanted to help open doors for more people. There aren't a lot of women um, footwear designers in our industry. And then, you know, not even to mention women of color, even less of us um, in the industry. And I, I knew that I, I wanted to use my voice a lot more than I was able to do at the time. And I wanted to teach and mentor a lot more. And so I resigned from Nike in 2016 
took the long journey in a U-Haul from, from Portland back to Miami with, with my mom and my aunt. And um, I started teaching at my own high school, teaching design there for a little bit. I taught it at the college level. And that was great. There's a lot of politics in education <laughs> in, in the formal sense. Um, and I learned a lot throughout that experience. But then I also knew that I still wanted to be creative. I still wanted to design. I wanted to try to find a happy medium. Um, and I, so I started my own design consultancy. I started designing um, footwear again and working with Champion as they were relaunching their brand and venturing into footwear. And then last summer, I got the call, you know, about the seed program, <laughs> you know, and then that, you know, from Mark Doce, who's someone who's really awesome, who I worked with back at Nike and Dwayne and, uh, and Liz Conley and Jessica Smith, amazing group of people who, you know, had a vision for shifting the educational system. Also, you know, partnering with, with a brand like this that at Adidas to really kind of a really affect change in our industry. And I knew that this was um, a program I had to be a part of. I'd experienced so much in my career and I felt like I had so much to give. And, um, you know, so I, I joined forces with them and, and was part of the board. And then lo and behold, in December, they offered me, you know, the role of design director for the program. And at that moment, I was like, oh, crap. All right, this is it. I'm moving to New York. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been great. You know, it's, it's like I said before, um, there's so much purpose in the work that we're doing. And, um, you know, we're really... We're shifting, you know, the way that the industry looks, feels, and operates from from the standpoint of of women in design and in diversity. And we have our first cohort of, of six, you know, amazing designers between the ages of twenty and twenty four, all from different parts, you know, of the country. Um, and they're all, you know, they moved here to New York to kind of further their careers. Yeah. Nice. First of all, I have to say this: Q is probably jealous as heck because you worked with Kobe. Uh, I'm also jealous, but Q times 37. I was looking at your portfolio. I was like, damn, damn. Yeah, that was such a, you know, such a blessing. I I feel very fortunate to have had the career that I've had. Um, But even more so now, you know, everything just, there's so much more meaning now as I look back and reflect. As a, as a child of uh, parents from the Caribbean, just Caribbean roots really um we don't see a lot of people like you to be honest we don't see a lot of people with your that look like us that have had the success that you've had what would you tell someone that um like me I'm 100% Puerto Rican what would you tell if I had kids what would you tell them uh towards striving towards their their goals and their aspirations in life right I would say like First of all, um, environment and support system, you know, so try to find other like-minded people. And even if they don't exist in your own family, there's a community out there and there's so much more access. Like when I was in college, there was no Instagram, there was no YouTube. (laughs) I've been out of college for 13 years. So to imagine um, an environment where social media wasn't even a thing, I think Facebook was just sort of emerging. Um, but now there's even more access now to build your own tribe and build your own community. So really strive to surround yourself with other people who are like-minded, who are driven, who want to be successful and share information with each other and, and create a, a really strong community. Um, I would say also education is very important. Not everyone has to go to a college or university. And I know it's becoming a lot more unattainable due to cost and location and COVID, <laughs> you know, which is why we created SEED. 
but there's so much, there's so much information out there. A lot of it exists in books, you know, and, and also like asking questions. LinkedIn is a great platform, which I advocate for all the time because I feel like I've met so many, you know, amazing aspiring designers on LinkedIn. I have a lot of mentors who I've met through LinkedIn. And I think a lot of people on that platform in particular are there because, you know, they want to grow professionally, but they also want to give. So that's a great place to, to gain mentors and, and get knowledge as well. Thousand percent. Um, going, going into your background, specifically like your time at, at Nike and just your portfolio in, in general, cause it's extensive. Uh, what, what does a day to day look like? And like, what's a timeline of like a project like that or projects that you've worked on? Um, well, it takes about 18 months for footwear to hit the market. And that's from the beginning of the process, the brief that you get from your marketing partners until it hits the retail um, shelves. But there's so much that happens within that time frame. I'd say that the design portion is maybe only six, six weeks or so. Um, so once you, you grab your brief, there's lots of research that has to be done. Um, like I talked about before, I think that we can draw anything. Really, you can design anything. You can draw anything. But how are you going to make sure that your product actually hits? You know, it can hit the shelves, but it can also flop, right? So I think it's really important to not only develop your sketching, you know, design abilities, but also like you have to grow the part of you that that just is intrinsic. And I think it, it, it exists at the belief level. And I think a lot of that comes from talking to people, immersing yourself in culture, knowing who's going to be purchasing this product and really invest yourself in knowing, you know, that person and their life and their plight and what matters to them and, and what they're going to spend their money on and how a product can really change their life and how they feel about themselves. So learning all of those things, I think just inherently makes, makes one a better designer and better creative. Um, so I spend a lot of my time in the beginning phase because once I figure that out, the shoe really designs itself. You know, sometimes you, and I've seen designers kind of jump in and just start drawing and sketching and then try to morph who it's for based on what they created versus immersing yourself in who you're creating for and putting that person first and then allowing the product to come from just knowing, you know, the person. So, um, but yeah, it's really six weeks of design work and then it's off to the factory and then it's back and forth, um, back and forth and refining. Um, there are lots of trips to Asia and trips to, um, you know, we used to go to Brazil when I was in emerging markets because we had factories in Brazil. I took lots of trips to India as well because we had factories in India. So um, lots of travel time back when we could travel. But that's really one project at a time. No, um, there are four seasons in the product creation cycle. And a lot of times, you know, any those three seasons, three of them could be overlapping at the same time. So once you're finishing up a project, you're maybe in the middle of another one. And then you have another project that's just at the front end that's at the beginning. But what's great, it's, it's, it can be um, cumbersome and, and um, really hard to balance three different seasons, which have three different needs and timeframes. But I think repetition is really important. And I learned so much from a shoe that I'm about to finish. And I know what didn't work in that process. And I have you know an, an opportunity to start fresh with a brand new project. And then I can say, okay, I know that this didn't work in my process. I have to flip it. And now I have time to kind of start fresh and new, um, you know, within a few weeks. So there's a lot of juggling and overlapping for sure. And lots of meetings as well during the day. In regards to um, 
your time now at Adidas and, and Seed School. What do you guys have coming up that you're really, really excited for? Is obviously year two is approaching here. Who knows after COVID at this point? So um, what's next? What I'm really excited about, and I think what makes our program really unique is that it's, it's learning by doing, I mentioned experiential, but we're actually taking products to market. So, you know, we're going to be dropping our very first superstar in January, which is really exciting. It's, it's our first shoe. Um, you know, all of our designers sort of rallied to come up with different ideas. We, we spent a lot of time doing lots of research. Like I mentioned before, we were talking to real people, you know, and trying to understand, um, you know, what are they going to be feeling, you know, in a post-COVID society. At the time when we were working on it, we thought, okay, by, by the time this shoe launches in January, we'll be out of the pandemic and, you know, we'll be on the other side of it. And we would have learned a lot and then we would learn that our consumers are, you know, people are thinking uh, about their product differently. So we had these really um, grandiose ideas as to where they would be. Um, but we also were really thinking about it's going to be a post-COVID society and, and, the meaning of products going to be different and maybe people are going to be buying less products. So we really have to be really mindful. Every decision that we make has to be meaningful, you know, to, to our consumers. And so we, we approached it that way. Um, so it's going to be dropping in January. We're super excited about that. And then that'll be our first one, but we have a lot of other products that we're working on um, taking, taking the market thereafter. Nice. The design aspect like fascinates me, but I think, from my perspective where I'm like, where my brain is going is like the design of like the actual program itself, like the accelerator, like what, what went into that? And then what are you guys like paying attention to? Like, as, as it continues, as like people are asking questions, as talent um, is asking questions, like, what does that look like? What does that process look like? Yeah. One thing that we learned um, very on, we had a set on, um, you know, curriculum because we partnered with Pencil and with Elaine mm-hmm. He's awesome. So he's a big part of our program and what we do. And we really um, took a lot of influence from his program. And it's it's cross-functional in a way. And we want to sort of bring some of that into our program. And we're exposing our designers to different parts of, of the design disciplines within product creation. So color and materials, you know, we're exposing them to that graphic design, um, apparel design, and also footwear design. And so we have those broken up by quarters, but we also realized throughout this process is that everyone learns differently. And that's where we want to be different. I think when you go to, you know, college or university, there's like, it's, it caters to one type of learner, you know, and what we're learning is, okay, we have to try some different things. So there are some people who learn better by just making things with their hands. So now we're exploring, okay, how can we cater to that type of learner? There are other people who need to have lectures, like they need someone, you know, sitting in front of them, um, you know, giving a lecture, also handing out notes, <laughs> you know, reading materials, those types of things. And then there are other people who, you know, need, to, need a combination of both. They need to be listening and doing at the same time. And so those are some things that we want to um, pay more attention to going forward and then try to really craft, you know, our, our day to day based on that. Um, and then there's, of course, you know, the sketching abilities and skills that we're really diving really deep into now. So every day our, our designers have a deliverable, you know, of a certain number of, of concepts every day. So just to kind of keep them fresh and, and moving, you know. What's the number? Um, it varies. 
<laughs> and every every morning they find out. <laughs> oh, could be five, it could be ten. Um, the next day it could be a little bit more. Um, but also like we have to keep refreshed, you know, um, and new and, and making sure that we're challenging and, and moving that bar every day. Yeah. It was a 3d designer for a while. Um, and there's like, I don't know who said it specifically, but it's like, if you take two designers, same talent, same level, same background, everything, um, one person's making like a masterpiece over a period of 30 days. The other person is like making 30 masterpieces. The person that's making 30 is going to just dominate every single time. So I dig that. That's cool. They're going to be not be happy in the program. I'd be upset. I was a terrible student. <laughs> <No. but> that's <laughs> cool from the outside looking in. We're always just thinking about the future, you know, and I think the best um, professionals are people who um, can operate with autonomy, you know, because the roadmap is not always going to be listed. It's not always going to be clear, you know, and you have to create structure for yourself and be able to adapt with whatever environment you go into. So that's why we're also trying to switch it up so that they can identify, okay, this is how I work best. But then also like I can stretch myself and I can, you know, switch up my style and do different things and just become, you know, um, just more well-rounded. So that's what we're really, we're really all about preparation and preparing them, you know, to be moving out of our program and what they're going to encounter later. You mentioned consumers are more mindful of what they're buying. Um, and whether that was post COVID or just, I feel like that was the way society was moving anyways. Right. Um, COVID just almost shined a light on it. Uh, what, what is the school doing in regards to sustainability? Um, are you guys focusing on sustainable materials? Um, do you have a, a focus on that or is there a sh possible shoe coming out, uh, that is around that subject? I feel like brands are, are talking so much about it. But when it comes down to actually doing it, it's, it, it seems like there's only like, if you read the fine print on some of these shoes, it's like 5% of the materials are actually sustainable, but they label it as sustainable sneakers. So how do we tackle that issue? Yeah, I think um, sustainable materials, that's like the low hanging fruit in a way. I think sustainability is a mindset and a process. You know, I think when we, when we create product, it's about also like time making something that's more timeless as well. Um, you know, even colors that we choose, you know, if, if consumers are going to be a lot more mindful of what they're buying, you know, are they going to be, you know, reluctant to purchase, you know, products that are a certain color that maybe they can't wear with everything, you know, so, so sustainability, how can we create a product that our consumers can wear more, more times, <laughs> you know, with, with different types of, of clothing so that it lasts longer. So they get more use out of it. So there you don't feel like, okay, I got to buy something else, you know? So I think there are a lot of ways to like approach sustainability, but, and then also it's mindfulness. But again, like our approach is making better products, you know, making products that have more meaning. So they don't just sit on the shelf if we produce it, <laughs> you know, we know what happens to those products that sit on the shelf. Yeah. You know? So there's, there's so many, so many ways to kind of approach sustainability and not just from a material standpoint, but it is like a mindset um, as well. You've been in the industry for a long time. Um, and the industry for lack of better terms has been male dominated for a long time. Um, can you describe your experience as a woman in the industry? 
Sure. Um, my biggest takeaway, and I think this has also made me a better designer, a better professional, and a better person, is making sure that I do my due diligence, that I don't just come up with something because I feel it like in myself <laughs> and it's like my idea. I always want to be um, a voice for other people. You know, and I think sometimes um, when we have the luxury of just representing ourselves because there's so many of us uh, we don't have to speak on behalf of a whole <laughs> group of people um, but I think being being one of the only women I remember when I was in basketball and on the design team I was the only woman on the design team <laughs> you know and and feeling the weight of of you know not just representing myself but representing like every other woman that maybe come behind me into the category of the role or, you know, every other black female designer that may want to come into the industry. I just always had that sense of, okay, I'm not just doing this for myself, but I'm doing this for like my gender or my race or, or the body of people I want to kind of bring along with me. And I always want to be um, a voice for them as well. And I think it, just having that mindset, just I feel like made me a better person in general and then a better professional. But, you know, I struggle to have my voice be heard often. Um, I think it's, it's hard to kind of interject sometimes, you know, if you're the only one in the room. Um, and then also like to own your own point of view. And I remember like the way used to say this to me all the time, um, you have to have a point of view, that's what you're being paid for, mm -hmm. you know? So, and I learned to sometimes stand on, on an island by myself with my own point of view that I, I had backed up by information and, and insights, but um, a lot of times I had a point of view that was different from everyone else in the room. And I had to be very comfortable with standing by myself and standing alone with my point of view if I believed that it was right and it was informed. And I think I, I once I finally learned that, I think I gained a lot more respect than just going along with everyone else, you know? Yeah. You say you learned that. What is that? What does that mean? Like, I, I know what you mean, but can you expand on that? Lots of trial and error. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, saying something and then being um, spoken over or, um, you know, being in a sketch review and, um, you know, having a negative comment be, be spoken like, hey, you should, you know, draw more like a boy. Whoa, well, what does that mean? You know, there are lots of, of those types of comments that just kind of fly out of someone's mouth and it doesn't, you don't know what's behind it. And I mean, I had a lot of those types of experiences and a lot of trial and error, but I, I think I knew I wanted to be in the industry. I knew I had something to give um, and I knew that you know, I'd be able to open doors for other people. So it was never about, um, you know, I want to quit. <laughs> you know, if this is my dream, I'd worked so hard to, to get to this place. So I just had to like, all right take it, process it, figure out what I'm going to do differently tomorrow or how am I going to address this? Or do I need to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with this person to resolve an issue that we're having, <laughs> you know, and, and keep moving forward. But I think it's really important to have that, that long-term goal, you know, and not let the day-to-day -day things kind of get you tripped up and caught up. And I think, you know, having stand, stood the test of time in this industry now to be in the position I'm, I'm in now, it makes it all worth it because now I can open the door for six other women of color to walk in and share a lot of those experiences that I had early on that were maybe negative, but I, I, I learned and I grew through it. And now I have something to kind of pass down to someone else. So. I want to expand on 
not even expand. It's going to be a two-part question. One, I'm weird. What is the significance? What is the significance behind six? Or is that just like, hey, like we like these six, or is it something you just pick? That's a great question. <laughs> How do we land on that number? I think we looked at it from the standpoint of um, quality over quantity. You know, I think you know sometimes when a, when a class is too big, and you got you all probably know this um, for creatives, and many of us are introverted. If we're in a room with other people and it's too many, you can kind of sometimes fall to the background. And um, we talked about what the right number was going to be. We landed on six. I think we felt like it was manageable. You know, we have a core team of, of three. And just the numbers seem to kind of balance out a little bit better. But we also wanted to make sure that um, we had a small enough group that we can really kind of invest as much as we could in, into a smaller group. So. Six. Um, and then... Second, second part question. You mentioned um, learning to own like your point of view. I love that. I think that should be on a t-shirt, but what, yeah. are, what are some of the other, like, I guess, soft skills that you're going about, like teaching the other, the, the six, um, what are some soft skills? The way you say the six makes it seem like they're superheroes. I know, man. That's they might be. Be. <laughs> six. Yeah. I mean, did you see the website, bro? <laughs> Um, the other soft skills, communication is huge. Um, and I think it's important to understand that it's okay to have a different communication style than someone else. And then really doing the work to identify what is, what's your own communication style. And, you know, we're on Zoom calls. So we have those conversations with our team all the time. Like, hey, if you don't want to speak up, there's also a chat feature. You know, um, preparation, coming to meetings prepared. I, I'm a big note taker. I have to have notes um, so that I can stay on track. And that's one thing we talk to our team about, the importance of taking notes, especially if you have a really packed day and you have a lot of meetings, you should be taking notes um, just so that you have a guideline. When you have a follow-up meeting, you know exactly where you left off. So it's just, those are more tangible um, things. But the other part of it is leadership is a huge, you know, thing that we work on with our team. And I know leadership is a big word that no one really knows what leadership really means, but we break it down. Part of it is owning your own point of view. The other part is knowing who you are, identity. We did a lot of work with our team in the very beginning around their identity. We took them through the strengths finders assessment, which I love and I, I'm a big proponent for, and I tell everyone they should take it. Um, and then take it again a few years later to see if your strengths um, change or adjust. And your strengths are just the things that you're great at, but they actually give, give you energy. And um, we took them through that and they learned more about themselves um, and who they are as creatives and who they want to be as professionals and how they want to change our industry. And then to be able to present that to other people. Um, and when they go through their design process to be mindful of their identity as a creative and as a person. Because I feel like everything stems from that. So those, those are some of the things that we really kind of drive home outside of the technical design skills that they need to have. I think from my perspective, the more I, I, I've been able to uh, record these conversations with different women in the industry, the last episode was actually Susan um, from Ron, which is awesome. Um, it's been really eye-opening. Um, I, I knew that there was a problem 
um, we knew that there was a problem in the industry. Then this is why we were going about doing women in sneakers, but the more we're diving into it, the more we, I, I feel like I didn't recognize how big of a problem there was and not just from a gender perspective, but a race perspective and everything like that. There's just, I, I don't think I comprehended it all before, like actually having conversations like we're having right now. And Susan was, like I said, an amazing interview, but we were talking about uh, how she had to battle tooth and nail to get her sneaker um, with Reebok uh, and Puma. Um, Puma was a little bit more open-minded with her, but Reebok, there was just uh, barrier over barrier over barrier. And then when she looked at this, her counterpart, that owned a retail store that was male, there was those barriers weren't there. And it took five years for Jazzy to get her own shoe after, uh, after Susan did. And it, it, who knows how long it's going to take from here. And I hope it's, it's relatively quick, but where do you think we're headed as an industry? Um, women in this industry and people of color in the industry, like, do you think that there's been enough, done that there's not going to be an issue or do you think that it, it might be something that we highlight for a little bit and kind of go into our own circle? Um, wh where do you think we're headed? I don't know. I'm, I'm super optimistic. Um, I'm always anyway, but even more so this year, because I feel like we've had the perfect storm, you know, like I said before, COVID kind of hit and stopped the world. And then we had everything that happened and ensued after that with, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I think the world is watching now and we have the opportunity to kind of start to put some other um, programs and, and things in place to really start to shift. And I think that things are changing. I see it this year with all the brands that are responding to, you know, social injustice and what's happening, you know, within our black and brown communities. And there's, there's an influx of, of finances and, and programs and there's so much being done. So I feel like it's, it's going to be um, a lot of positive change coming out of this year. I think we just, we can't let this window of time close for us because, you know, yeah. it's a finite window of time where this may no longer be the conversation in a few months. But I think we kind of have to harness this moment, put some really like foundational things in place, put teams of people in place to execute against the vision um, so that things can change. But we have to turn the corner from being consumers to producers, Yeah, you know? And, and that's always just been the big issue, right? Like there's been this veil, um, you know, that's, that's sort of been uh, around people who produce and create and, and we haven't really been part of the conversation from a creator standpoint. Um, and to be at a brand like Adidas, which is the creator's brand, <laughs> you know, um, it's an amazing time and I'm excited about it because we're having those open, honest conversations and dialogues now, and we're putting things in place. And I, and I hope that from an education standpoint, other brands are kind of waking up and, and, and looking at what we're doing and then identifying ways for them to help. Because I think brands more, now more than ever have the power to influence the educational system. Because we can kind of see that that's sort of breaking down on so many levels. Mm -hmm. So what does the future of education look like is what where, where my mind is and, and looking at the power that brands have to change the world as well. 
Does they have the air of consumers? You know, I think everyone's kind of paying attention to certain brands, the ones that are big, that are, are really innovative and they can innovate education and they can, you know, take a hand or have a hand in, you know, educating like the, the, the future uh, creators for, for their companies. So I'm, I'm optimistic, you know, more than ever that, you know, things will change and that we'll have pathways, you know, to, to become creators and producers, you know, not just consumers. Feel it when you. Uh, I have a random question. I, I forgot who Q and I had on the podcast, and maybe he remembers after I tell the, a little bit of a story. But uh, she was saying that she picked up and went somewhere, and she always brought somebody with her. I think it was Sarah Green from Adidas, if I'm not mistaken. Um, or so, uh, some, it was New Balance. No. Oh yes, it was. Yeah. It was Charlene Masona from New Balance. Uh, Everywhere she went, she yeah. picked up and had someone, uh, whether it was her, her friend or her fiance, anybody. Um, do you have anybody when you moved from New York to, to, or Portland to Miami to Miami? From New York? random question. I know. I just had to ask it. I was wondering. after. I feel like at every juncture, I've met someone new. Look at that. You know? Um and I can look back as far as like, you know, childhood and like every school I've been a part of, there's always been someone who came alongside me and they, they, they helped me get to the next step. And then they went away. And then they really go away, but they kind of fell back and like created space for someone else. So I feel like every move that I've made, whether it was an art teacher, there was an admissions counselor, it was a mentor, you know, who I had a, a mentor who now is like my best friend and create space for um, someone else to also like come alongside me and help me get to that, that next step. And um, I look for people now who I can be that for, you know, like when I left um, uh, high school, you know, there was other designers who I went off to college with and that I always stayed in contact. So when I left Nike, there were five of us from my high school you know, that, That's cool. that was working at the brand. We created this pipeline naturally because we're all coming from Miami. We all took the same route from Miami to Detroit and out to Portland and, and to Nike. So we had like this, this, this pipeline happening the whole time. And even still now I'm mentoring, you know, aspiring designers from my old high school or my old college and like telling them what their portfolio should look like, who they should talk to um, and creating these pathways. So. So how do you think that's so hard for some people to give back, to help, to bridge versus chopping down the ladder or the bridge or whatever? Like, why is it so hard? Or is it just not wanted? Or what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. Maybe it's privilege. You know, like I, I feel like, you know, for many of us who haven't had, you know, privilege or, or, or a carpet rolled out for us, we understand how hard it how hard it is, and then we understand that we didn't get to where we got by ourselves. Like I said, I had a bunch of mentors, you know, people who reached their hands out to me um, and helped me move forward. And so it's almost like a responsibility um, to kind of reach back and, and pay for and do that for someone else because we we're all we got, you know, <laughs> which is also a t-shirt. <laughs> so it's our responsibility to, to uplift each other, especially in our communities, because we know that we can't depend on anyone else outside of our communities, you know? Yeah. We've, we've seen a, a common, and this is why I asked the question, Q, was it that right? We've seen a commonality be, behind um, picking up 
in the industry, you have to be willing to kind of drop everything for a position. And, um, whether it's first starting out entry level, you got to move up to Portland or New York, Boston, wherever. Um, and it, it seems like people, I mean, people are very hesitant doing that, especially moving to a place you don't know, know anybody, anything like that. Do you, do you have any recommendations to that person, whether it was Sharice moving to New York or Sharice moving to Portland? Yeah, um, I always just kind of listen to like my intuition and I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. I believe that God has a path and a plan and a purpose for all of us. And for me, I just always wanted to know what that was. And I knew that it would be on the other side of my sacrifice. Um, and so it, it's always been hard for me to move. Every one of the steps that I took, I, I moved, that I moved, it was very difficult. But the bigger, more difficult part would have been if I'd stayed where I was. And then I always wondered what was on the other side of that opportunity and where would I have been if I had taken it or I decided not to. And I'll often think about, you know, my move to New York and, you know, if I hadn't moved, what would my life have been <laughs> like? And all the amazing things that have happened to me, even in COVID, <laughs> I wouldn't have experienced it that if I didn't take, take, you know, the leap of faith and, and take that move, you know, but then also like, there's so many people who I can now affect because I made those moves. Like I wouldn't have been able to, to do everything that I've done and be able to kind of help all the people that I helped if I hadn't like taken those steps to acquire the things that I acquired and then learned, I wouldn't have had, had anything to give, you know? So sometimes it takes sort of like stepping out of our own, stepping out of the, the box and, and like laying down selfishness and it's not always about us and I always believe I'll be provided for in every way shape or form possible if I would just kind of submit myself to the process and submit myself to where I'm needed and give in in a place where I'm needed and then I'll be taken care of you know I think that's just been my mindset the whole time love that yeah that's beautiful I I have a random question I think this can be a um segue into the rapid fire questions unless Izzy objects. Um, I'm not sure no, if we really. talked about this. I'm not sure if we talked about this last time in like our pre-chat, but is that a gamer chair? And if so, are you a gamer? What do you play? And if not, just forget the question. <laughs> <laughs> it is a gamer chair. Um, it's just more inspirational. <laughs> it looks so comfortable. Uh, it is very comfortable. I actually You haven't have- moved. <laughs> yeah, I still have my uh, very first Nintendo, which I'm not sure yes. if it was the first Game Boy that ever came out. <laughs> so um, I hold on to those relics in the first PS, uh, PS1. Um, Tekken was my favorite game. Yes. And Tekken and what? Cold Borders. Tekken and what? What'd you say? Cold Borders. Cold Borders? Cold Borders, yeah. Cold Borders, I don't know that. Yeah, snowboarding game. And um, Super Nintendo, I have all those. But I haven't played them. Nice. Yes. I'm ashamed I, uh, of not knowing that game. Claim to fame, I beat Q and Tekken uh, <laughs> probably 60% of the time we play. That is a lie. We played once and he never played me again. Because all he did, all he did was lay down and mash the same button. It hit history. <laughs> <so much. laughs> Tekken, that was, that was the game. <laughs> it was. My uh, Q used to have it when we were roommates and uh, our buddy would come over and play Q all the time and Q would just kick his butt every time. 
and I played, I did play once and I just jammed the button and beat him. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Wouldn't play me again. No. And I'll see Nintendo, um, NBA Jam. That was Ooh, it. yeah. Go to classic. It's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, last five minutes, I want to hit you with a few uh, rapid fire questions. The first one I have to ask because you said it in the beginning. Why is Alonzo Mourning your favorite NBA player of all time? I don't know. It's just drop step, you know? Like, I watched mm-hmm. him, like, playing in Charlotte, you know, when I was a kid. And I still have his – I actually still have his, his Charlotte jersey and his Miami jersey. But you, when he got into the paint, like, you just knew it was going to go down. You know, like, whether he's going to be dunking on, on top of someone or if it was going to be the hook shot or, like, the drop – I don't know. I just – his, his dance in the paint like that <laughs> that, that motion and that movement for such a big guy um I just loved his style of play I love that yeah and then the Miami thing like when he moved to Miami and you know he, he played I used to go watch all the games and you know yeah him and Sean Leonard those are like my two yeah favorite um Miami players and Tim Hardaway yeah <laughs> nice very old yeah. school yeah um you still a basketball fan? I am. Okay. I don't Favorite player now? Uh, I don't know if I have one right now. You yeah, know, stop watching and, when you retired, honestly. Yeah, it's tough. Um, Dwayne Wade, of course, was my favorite as of late. I don't know if I have a favorite now. We'll see. We'll see who emerges. I respect it. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your favorite shoe you've ever worked on? Well, I would say there's two of them. Um, The Jordan 16.5. Okay. All all of them are probably going to be Jordan shoes just because of the way. Like I wasn't, I was never actually part of the Jordan brand and the team, but I was like a ghost designer in a way (laughs) where, you know, I was part of a different team and I I just wanted work. I wanted to be able to like develop. And again, like Dwayne is an awesome mentor. And he's like, well, if you come over here, I'll give you stuff to work, to work on and to do. And I did, I designed my first 10 um, shoes with the Jordan brand. I was never actually like formally a part of the team, but I traveled with them. Um, 16.5 was great. I mean, you know, like Wilson Smith, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wilson's such an amazing designer. He's first black designer at Nike and he designed the 16 and the 17. And so I was actually able to like work with him on the 16.5 and he shared with all of his original sketches with me, like the original uh, inspirations for those two shoes. And then my task was, you know, coming up with the shoe that would be the predecessor to the 16, but like come right before the the 17, how to take those really key details and like pull pull that into a performance shoe. And it was great. Um, I had an opportunity to travel to Georgetown University and I watched those basketball players actually wear Tesla shoes. So um, there's so much memory, so many memories around that project. Nice. And that was actually the first shoe that Dwayne Wade wore when he transitioned over to Jordan brand from Converse. So Ooh. that kind of came full circle. And I still have his, cool. his PEs that it says splash on them. Um, <sighs> I'm holding on to those. And um, the other one would be um, the Flight 45. Ooh, okay. Um, I did the high and the mid. That was a really fun project as well. Um, I was just drawing the post-it notes at that time and trying to, like, come up with things that I thought were really fun. And um, I think at that time, like, supers were really big and, 
you know, everyone's kind of like on those higher, higher top, like more bulky types of shoes. And um, so that one was pretty fun. I think that was probably like my, the best selling product I'd worked on. And I saw it in music videos and like Little Wayne was wearing them in like a music video. So that was really fun. Just kind of seeing like, you know, the entertainers that I looked up to like wearing product that I created was, was amazing. What is a book that you would say every designer needs to read? Mastery by Robert Greene. I mentioned this before. I think it's actually even back there. Robert um, and he talks about, we've heard about, we've heard, you know, um, about 10,000 hours and it takes 10,000 hours to like become really great at anything. And Robert Greene talks about 30,000 hours to become a master um, at your craft. And I love it because there's a lot of um, anecdotes from different like, people in history and their process and how they committed themselves to their craft. And I think aside from developing, you know, your sketching abilities or, or um, your storytelling abilities, I think it's just about commitment and dedication to your craft. Like if you say that you love it, it should never be work. You should never dread doing it. And I think that's, you know, if someone wants to be a designer, they really have to ask themselves, do I have the mental fortitude to do what I need to do to be great? And it's not going to be a nine to five job. You know, so if you don't want to draw after 5 p.m., this probably isn't <laughs> the role or the career path, you know, for you. It's going to take a lot um, and it's going to take a commitment, you know, to the process to be great. Um, so mastery, I would say, would, would be a book that, that any, any creative should read or any person, you know, should read in general. What's, um, what's one skill uh, someone getting into the sneaker industry needs? Communication. Um, and it may sound strange to say that, but... Everything that we need, like if you, if you need something, you're going to, the answer will be found, you know, on the other side of, of you being able to ask for what you need. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, there's there, there's, um, you know, discomfort around, you know, asking for what you need or, or sometimes people just feel really insecure, you know, but you kind of have to be vulnerable, you know, in this industry and, and be honest and ask for what you need and ask for help from you. We need so I think communication and, and just being fearless also um, will be two things that I think you know can really get someone to where they want to be you know in this industry. So. If someone wants to, um, I don't know the verbiage. Someone wants to be a part of the seed program um, as a whatever the word is that I'm supposed to say there as a student. Um, how do they go about doing that? Um, yeah, email us um, at seedschool.adidas.com and we're going to be rolling out on our recruitment efforts um, pretty soon. But I'd say just be working on your craft. I think a a big piece of it is, you know, part of of, um, our application process is submitting a shoe that we've never seen before and doesn't exist. But, you know, we can only do so much also. You know, so everyone has to also be invested in their own career and their own um, growth. So I think, yeah, apply, you know, via the email, but also like be practicing, be working so that when we do have that interview, you have like ways in which to show us that you've actually been investing in your own career and your own growth. Like 
who did you reach out to, you know, LinkedIn, if anyone mentoring you, like we really would want to see um, that that person is already investing, you know, in their own growth. And it doesn't have to be, oh, I paid, you know, this crazy amount of money for this program or, you know, I'm taking another online class. Like those things are fine. And if you can do it, if you have the finances to do it, that's fine. But if you don't, it doesn't cost anything to just draw on paper mm-hmm. you know, or, or research or read some articles or just kind of show us like what you've been doing um, to prepare yourself for the opportunity. And those things are really 